0: were the first christians a cult we've been asking that question some version of that question in my nine o'clock bible study these past couple weeks as we've been working our way through the first epistle of john a little bit of which we just heard read this morning this kind of weird maybe vaguely cultish sounding meditation on water and spirit and the blood they were certainly an odd group of ducks these members of john's community the same group of folks who gave us the gospel according to John, which, which Gail just read, which we just heard, these beautiful, these stirring words about the importance of loving one another. Jesus says, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. And that's such, a, that's such a beautiful scene, isn't it? You can almost imagine these guys like reclining on their eating couches, right? Everybody reclined when you threw a dinner party in the ancient world, which I think must have done a real number on their digestion, but leave that alone. They've just finished this incredible meeting meal, right? This is their, this is their last meal together. The wine is flowing, the conversation turns to what's going to happen next. Scholars call this Jesus' farewell discourse in John, this long meditation, it's many chapters long, that Jesus gives in the presence of his disciples on their last night together. At times he is sharp and pointed with them, sometimes he is densely theological, but as he nears the end of this long discourse, you can almost, you can almost hear Jesus starting to get a little sentimental. Like he's, he's looking around the circle of these, of these disciples and realizing how deeply he cares for them. How much he loves these guys who have been hanging out with him since day one. These bumbling fools who never really got it, who never really got what he was trying to show them about what God was like. But in this final moment, right, none of that matters. At the end of the day, Jesus doesn't care about Peter and James and John and Matthew and Bartholomew because they're good pupils, they weren't. He cares about them because he likes them, right, they're his friends. He enjoys hanging out with them, they make him smile, they make him laugh. And that is what he leaves them with, this encouragement, a mandate even. It's a command to continue to be with one another, to continue to hang out with one another in the way that he has been hanging out with them. Do not forget this experience, he tells them. Don't forget this moment, because this is who you really are. The way we are with one another when we let our guard down and just hang out and enjoy one another's company that is who we really are like vines rooted in the main branch he suggests the life of faith is actually not always about running to and fro and you know going up and down accomplishing tasks saving the world the most important thing jesus has to teach these guys at the end is simply when to stay put when to abide when to dig in and take root and find solace in the love and the presence, the peace of God which passes all understanding, as St. Paul says elsewhere in the New Testament. Jesus says, I am about to leave you. That does not mean you have lost me. You can, in fact, you must, continue to abide in this incredible friendship that the 13 of us have cultivated together. He's including Peter in this, right? He's including Judas, who was already gone, you know, to turn him into the authorities. Jesus says, you are my friends. Abide in my love. None of the other three Gospels have this same profound insistence on love that John's gospel does. It's maybe the, the most important word in the whole Johannine corpus that includes these three letters that a later writer wrote to the community or communities that were gathered around this particular way of remembering Jesus, this particular lineage, if you like, that established this most mystical of the gospel accounts. First John, this epistle that we've been reading over these past few weeks is kind of like a, an extended set of, of footnotes, if you like, glosses, you know, remarks that seek to apply the teaching of Jesus in the gospel of John to a very different, a very particular situation faced by that church several decades after the gospel had probably been written. This is a community that had experienced itself over the years as embattled, as as misunderstood by other communities around it. It's probably a community of, at first, Jewish believers in Jesus who at some point in their history, we don't know exactly when, were kicked out of the synagogues to which they belonged. They were excluded. Um, And that traumatic experience of being exiled and and betrayed by those whom you love, that gave this early community a particularly uh, particularly sharp sense of who's in and who's out. They were very concerned with this question of, like, how do you know who your friends are? Who are our real friends? Who are our enemies? How do we know the difference? This is literature in an early Christian community that for all of its mystical meditation on love and light and the water and the word and the spirit, despite all of that, this is a community that actually had very sharp, very tightly drowned boundaries. They, They had a finely honed sense of who was in and who was out. And it's significant, I think, that these other, the other three Gospels that we've got, Matthew, and Mark, and Luke, the earlier three, Jesus is remembered in those Gospels as having said stuff, you know, like love your neighbor and love your enemies even. John's Gospel does not remember Jesus saying any of that. Uh, this is a community where Jesus never says love your enemies. He says love your brothers, love your sisters. No one has greater love than this, Jesus says in John, to lay down one's life for whom, not the world, not everybody out there, greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for one's friends. It's a little insular, which can make us a little uncomfortable. It's not a, it's not a universal love ethic that this particular Christian community practiced. Their doors, in some ways, were barred against those whom they considered to be the world, right? the outsiders. John has nothing good to say about the world. Many of those were actually probably other communities gathered around Jesus, other Christian communities. And it was suggested by this insular community that they were misunderstood, that they were deliberately excluded by those. And so this was a community, right, no surprise, that was prone to further splits and schisms. The epistles of John were most likely written, to encourage a kind of faithful remnant, to make sure that they didn't slip into the kind of heresy and backsliding that those who had departed had, had fallen into. This was an insular and embattled community for all of their you know, beautiful and pious talk about love and friendship. And I've been, I've been thinking about that. this kind of weird like almost cultish feeling that you get from this literature um, some of the early Christian communities because, uh, like many of you probably, James and I have been watching Wild Wild Country on Netflix. Uh, some of you may have seen this, This it's Netflix's six-part documentary about the, the commune, Rajneeshpuram, that was established in the ni- early 1980s by followers of Bhagwan Sri Rajneesh in the little town of Antelope, actually not too far from here in Central Oregon. I imagine that some of you, maybe many of you, in this room today lived through the Rajneeshi years in Portland. You may remember the sense of threat and embattlement that many Oregonians felt towards the Rajneeshis. And then the equally sort of paranoid attitudes that were held by members in the commune, which led some of them to engineer what remains the largest bioterrorism attack in U.S. history. I was I was mostly too young to know what was going on in the early '80s when it was all going down, but I sure remember as a kid hearing these kind of scary cautionary tales about crazy people in red who were jumping around ecstatic, ecstatically and poisoning salad bars. I mean, I I actually still don't feel all that comfortable eating from an open salad bar to this day, especially like if I'm hanging out in the Dalles. It's like steer clear of the salad. (laughs) Oregonians, suffice to say, did not warm to the Rajneeshis, and that feeling of suspicion and mistrust was mutual. We uh, We were in mutual contempt for one another, and we called them a cult, right? That's how I grew up hearing about the Rajneeshis. That's how I grew up referring to them. I thought that they were a cult, because they seemed to fit our definition, my definition, of what a cult was. Their behavior seemed out of the norm, at least for small-town ranchers in Antelope. There was free love, there was lots of sex, there were rumors of drug use. I mean, you know the story, right? There's a charismatic Indian guru, some seriously Byzantine power struggles going on, a provocative aide-de-camp named Sheila. I mean, you've got all the, all the fixings, fixings of a seismic culture clash playing out right here in our little neck of the Pacific Northwest woods. And what I loved about the Netflix documentary about this period is that nobody comes out vindicated, and nobody quite comes out demonized either. There's always, in this, in this documentary, in this story, there's always at least two incommensurate narratives at play here. Just about every character in this drama is a little bit larger than life, which is to say that just about every character in this story is intensely human. And my husband, James, got a little bit fascinated, maybe even a little obsessed, with Ma'anan Sheila, the controversial secretary of the Bhagwan, who was exiled from the commune, later extradited back to the U.S. on charges of attempted murder. And at the end of the documentary, they're interviewing Sheila today. and This is a little bit of a spoiler, but don't worry, you'll, you'll want to watch it anyway. At the end of the documentary, you see Sheila as she is now. She's running this care facility out of her home in Switzerland for disabled patients um and to hear her to hear her talk about the facility she's running right we we cook together we dance we sing together we share our lives you think or i thought Oh my gosh, like she's just creating Rajnishpuram on a smaller scale in Switzerland, right? It's a little haunting. I found it a little haunting, a little creepy to watch this woman laughing and cooking for her residents and tucking them in at night with a caress and a kiss. It's like I want to yell out, like, keep your eyes on the salad tongs, right? Like, you know what we know what this woman is capable of. <laughs> like, do not trust her. For James, who did not grow up in Oregon, who did not have on Sheila as like the arch-villain sitting over his shoulder, right, this, this, this uh, sort of contemporary story was kind of a moment of redemption for her. And we found ourselves not really arguing, but certainly with two very different takes on who this woman was and is. Is she the, the master villain devious to the end? Or has she finally gotten in touch with her best qualities, does the, this fierce loyalty, this, this deep ability to care for those in need, like does that redeem her? Does her present redeem her past? And how willing, how willing am I to work at understanding, maybe even sympathizing, with someone whom I grew up thinking of as, as the arch villain, as the enemy, as evil incarnate? At the end of the interview, at the end of the documentary, there's a little clip from an interview that Sheila gave um, from prison. 30 years ago, she turns directly to the camera in this interview and she says, I say this to you Oregonians, you did not understand Bhagwan, you did not understand his teachings, you did not understand Sheila. As an Oregonian, that sent a chill up my spine. As a Christian, it gives me deep pause. Because there's a lot that goes on in this story from 30 years ago about a a community in Antelope. Very little of it looks to me like an attempt to understand someone who is different from me. Being afraid, making judgments, right? All of that is natural. It's, It's born into us. It's in our bodies. It's human. Working towards understanding takes something different. And there's a way in which this story about Oregon in the 1980s is not all that different from the story of these earliest Christian communities in the first century. Communities like John's were accused by the world outside of them. They were accused of cannibalism, they were accused of holding orgies, kidnapping people's children and brainwashing them. Communities of the first Christians were seen by their society as subversive, as an impediment to good government. Their allegiance to a a foreign charismatic guru was seen as a direct threat to the supremacy of the Roman Empire their beliefs were criticized, they were attacked, they were seen as superstitious, that was a traditional Latin word for a stupid you know, foreign religion that didn't make sense to them. I mean, people literally said, you don't belong here. Roman citizens would try to pack them out of town, right? Romans were saying that about Christians centuries before Oregonians were saying it about the Bhagwans, sannyasins. I mean, at best, these people were seen as weird. At worst, they were seen as a threat to themselves and a threat to the peaceful society that was being cultivated around them. And I don't quite know what to do with this. I don't quite know what to do with with the fact that these beautiful words that we read in church Sunday after Sunday without so much as, you know, batting an eye, right? As the Father has loved me, so I love you. Abide in my love. I don't know what to do about the fact that the people who remembered those words and wrote them down were people whom I would now probably consider to be a cult. Our earliest ancestors were not respectable people. They were slightly unhinged, embattled, neurotic, fearful people who were convinced that the world was out to get them and that they needed to kind of batten down the hatches and preserve their ranks. And those strains of isolationism and suspicion of a wider world run deep in this tradition. In some ways, this is the history of Christianity. For thousands of years, Christians have had to navigate the pitfalls that these earliest communities have created for us. And sometimes... More often, I think, than we realize, we descend into the very kinds of parochial thinking that seems often to define a threatened community, right? We start thinking in terms of us versus them. We're seduced into divvying up the world into black and white, light and dark, you know, people who agree with us and people who don't, Christ and Antichrist. That is the world that these earliest ancestors of ours inhabited. Sometimes they look a lot more like a cult than makes us comfortable. And yet, the legacy that these ancestors leave us as problematic as it sometimes is on the one hand. On the other hand, they preserve these words. They preserve these texts that in some ways undermine and transmogrify the black and white thinking that gave rise to it. It's a little bit like, I think, like reading the Declaration of Independence, right? This this stirring assertion of the the truth that we all hold to be self-evident, that all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, among which are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It's like reading those words And then remembering that the guy who wrote them not only owned slaves, but fathered children by them. And the deep contradictions, the the pernicious prejudice, the privilege that haunted a guy like Thomas Jefferson, might, on the surface of things, and, and probably does for many, make these words a farce, makes them a joke. And yet they are the very words that inspired the next generation to begin to work for the end of slavery, however imperfectly they did it, They're the same words that a a great-grandson of an enslaved African then quoted on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial on a fateful day in 1963, calling America to engage deeply in the dream that the words contained despite their unsavory provenance. And maybe we have yet to see the promise of those words realized. That doesn't mean that we're let off the hook to stop working towards the reality to which they're calling us. So it is with John's Gospel, written by a community that looked with deep suspicion, deep fear on those outside their embattled little walls. But words that caused subsequent generations of believers to actually start looking beyond the narrow boundaries of their parochial concerns and seeking a a bigger religion, a greater Christianity, a more humane way of being human, however imperfectly that might be realized. Jesus says, love one another as I have loved you. No one has greater love than this, to lay down one's life for one's friends. And he says, I have appointed you to go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. I am giving you these commandments, he says, so that you may love one another. And century after century, we start seeing the ways in which that one another gets broadened and then broadened again and then broadened again and we're asked to wrestle sometimes uncomfortably with the ways in which we want to restrict that tendency our our ancestors have been doing that for a long time the words mitigate against that even though the people who wrote them down were doing exactly that loving one another in the way that jesus suggests invites is, I think, an impossible request. These days especially, I think, when everything in our society works against my coming to understand, maybe even to love people who see the world very differently than I do. I mean, we've got our own cults today, right? America is a wild, wild country. But working towards understanding, working towards friendship, working in the spirit of agape love, this kind of divine love that is maybe not even attainable by human beings, but for the grace of God, It seems to me that that is the only fruit worth working for. That beyond the the narrow thinking, the prejudice that infect even the most broad-minded of us, right? That we might actually get better at learning what it means to become a friend of God by learning how to befriend one another. That's not an American project. That's a human project. That's a project to which Jesus calls all of his friends, even when they think that by virtue of being friends of Jesus, they have to be enemies of the world, right? There are no easy tricks. There's no shortcuts to the challenge of loving this way, the challenge of loving well. There's only this daily struggle, right? And we work it out generation after generation to transcend the prejudice and the fear that we were handed, the prejudice and the fear that comes so naturally to us, and learn not just to see enemies, not just to see neighbors, to see friends in the places that we least expected to find them. And little by little, botched effort after botched effort, we catch these little sneaking glimpses around the corner of the kingdom of God. That is fruit worth working for. It might even be fruit worth dying for. Because ultimately that is what Jesus asks of his friends. It's not enough to feel warm fuzzies about me. That's not what love looks like. It's not enough to emulate me. It's not enough to admire me. It's not enough to pay attention to my teachings, right? Jesus says, I demand it all. I demand the whole thing, your whole life, right? Warts and all. Only by becoming fully who you are, Jesus says, can you learn to love and understand somebody else. Until you're, until you're willing to be friends with one another, until you're willing to be that vulnerable, you're just playing at church. But the commandment is to love, and that's hard. And in another way, it's not that hard. My commandments are not burdensome, John wrote. In one way, this is the easiest thing in the world, isn't it? It's the thing that, that sets us free to become the people God has created us to be. There is freedom in that. It's hard work. It's the only work worth doing. Amen.